everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here on the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. And for the purposes of this podcast, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. Uh, Your enthusiasm, it sounds like it's starting to wane a smidge. <laughs> I'm just a little embarrassed that it caught on, frankly. <laughs> uh, I think at one point I made that suggestion that you need to write in and call me Rockmeister McCool. And that's now my letters answering name. Okay, do you realize how many people would like kill to have a nickname like Rockmeister McCool? Someday I hope to live up to that nickname. Think about how many people have just like normal everyday nicknames like Skippy and they're tiny or Rick. Like you know, like you've got (laughs) what a weird nickname. Yeah, you've seen Down Periscope. Uh, Yes, Kelsey Grammer. I have seen Down Periscope. Down Periscope with Kelsey Grammer. Hey man, what's your name? Nitro. Oh, that's a cool. That's a cool nickname. What's your real name? No, Nitro is my real name. It's on my birth certificate. I was thinking about getting a nickname, though. Let me let me test this out. Mike. <laughs> Funniest part of the movie. I, I, there, you don't have to see Down Periscope. It's like the. It's not even that funny. It's just kind of droll. I, I found a fingernail in my food yesterday. There was a band aid. Sorry, sir. The band aid was holding the fingernail on. Okay, that's the other part. Yeah. Of Down Periscope. Yes, we actually remember dialogue from the completely lost, forgotten 1996 comedy Down Periscope. Wasn't that like Patton Oswalt's first movie or something? Oh, I don't remember, actually. I'm going to look that up. Mm. Well, you read a letter. I, so I, know, this, I know Rip Torn was in it. Here's how this like, podcast works. Here's how this podcast works. You write us letters uh, at letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. That is the email address. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You ask us questions, you critique our critiques, you uh, ask for recommendations, whatever you want, basically. This is your time, you may use it however you like. We read as many letters as we can over the course of an episode, and we yield our time to you. So, Whitney, mm-hmm. let's get going without any further ado, right. while I look up Pat Oswalt's first film. Uh, Alright, here's a letter from Benjamin. Hello, Benjamin. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister Meister Rocker. Mm, I'll that's take cool. that one. Too. It was down Periscope! It was down Periscope! Yay! Yes! down. Slap! <laughs> Thank you so much for the wonderful podcasts. They are always the highlight of my night walks. Ooh, uh, nice. I hope they're a nice spooky neighborhood. Yeah, and you can hear like an ominous whistling in the back. Are you trying to do the X Files theme song there? No, oh, I was right. I, I was just trying to like come up with something random and spooky. There was actually oh, an right. old radio series called The Whistler. Oh yeah, but The Whistler's tune never stuck in my head. I don't think it's very right. catchy. But it turns out William Castle directed multiple movies of The Whistler. No kidding. Yeah, I didn't no, know yeah. that. You know, the, the Tingler, like, this first sort of big explosion onto the yeah. scene. But when it's he was like doing, his 40th movie. Yeah, he was he doing like, B-movies all throughout yeah. the 40s and 50s. Anyway, moving on. Uh, two films you've re- uh, reviewed recently got me thinking. First, you recently reviewed the Disney animated Robin Hood. Yes. And your review led to a fun discussion with my friend, who is a self-appointed Robin Hood scholar, mm. who would brook no argument about how great that film was until I, I was reminded by you that the film has no ending. <laughs> We then had a great chat about Robin Hood and film and TV, mostly revolving around our love of the aughts BBC show that we love. The great conversation kept kept that review in my mind until your review of Measure for Measure. With Robin Hood slated as a Western retelling of the tale and Measure for Measure as another modern retelling of Shakespeare, well, 
Okay. Um, I was wondering what classic tales you would like to see in a different setting. Would you love to see a classic film noir but set in rural Russia? Or perhaps go full Scotland PA and just do a series of Shakespeare plays all set in fast food restaurants? <laughs> Please feel free to get as weird with it as you like, and as I know you can. Sincerely and with great planks, Benjamin. Okay, so what are we, So is it any classic literature? Or is it cla- just- classic literature or tales in a mm. modern setting. My favorite version of that, and mm. I don't know if I could top this, I'm just going to name check it now, mm. is I Walked with a Zombie, which is, oh, you if you've never seen it, it's great. Oh. It is Jane Eyre, but instead of, like, the, the lady with, like, mental yeah, health the, issues the locked in a cabin. Uh, She's locked in the attic. And locked yeah. in the attic, yeah, and the, it's the just insane, like, oh. The insane wife locked in the attic. Yeah. Uh, now she's undead. <laughs> she's a zombie. And this is from the 40s, so it's all, like, classy and, like, moody, and um, it's neat. It's a mm-hmm. it's a neat adaptation, and I love it when they do those really weird ones like Forbidden Planet or, yeah. or, um, uh, or Barbarella, which is Casablanca, but in the post-apocalyptic future. That, that's also the uh, barbed wire. I'm sorry, I meant Barbarella. Uh, yeah. Did I say Barbarella? You said Barbarella. I, they're the two Bar- barbs. Yeah, Barb Wire, the uh, Pamela Anderson vehicle mm. from '96 or seven. That's um, what I was thinking. Yeah, of. that's that's Casablanca. And uh, and uh, Barbara Streisand's The Mirror has two faces. Also Casablanca in a post-apocalyptic future. That's right. All, all of the Barbara movies. <laughs> <laughs> the Mirror has two faces. It's not an adaptation of classic literature, um, as far as I know. It's uh, got some big million influences. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm very I'm also very fond of uh, Strange Brew, oh, the, yeah, Bob, yeah. the Bob and Doug McKenzie comedy from Canada from 1983. I rewatched uh, that one because I thought it might end up because we're going to do an Iron List later this month of our favorite Shakespeare adaptations, uh-huh. and I hadn't seen Strange Brew since I was a kid. I like it. I think it loses steam after a while, so I don't think it's going to make my list. But that is Hamlet at a brewery. It's, it's Hamlet at a brewery told from the perspective of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. With Max von Sydow as uh, uh, Polonius, I guess. Um, I like, suppose, yeah. yeah. And uh, also the ghost like haunts an arcade machine. Mm. It's weird. Sometimes I wish it was weirder because it's got dry patches, but it's definitely worth seeing. It's very... The opening <laughs> is genius. Yeah, yeah. Um... Okay, but uh, we got to come up with a new I have one. To, I have to come up with a new Something one. New. Like, I'm trying to think classic of... lit. Uh, hmm. I, I'd love to see uh, just a, a straight with modern language and modern setting version of Hamlet about a you know hmm. that story about a, a college kid who comes home and instead of a kingdom, it'd have to be a business. I know that's what they did in the Michael Al- Almereda film. Yeah, uh, but you know, make it a little bit more expansive. Have the whole text, like mm-hmm. make a four-hour version. But in a modern setting, you can mostly pull I'd love that to off, see how that would that would play out. Okay, I'm gonna work. Um, I'm gonna work in a different way. Yeah. Okay, now imagine there's a certain subgenre of film mm. that are about that are all like set at Italian villas. You know, like Call Me by Your Name and mm. Under the Tuscan Sun, mm. and they're L- all luxury porn. Yeah, basically, it's just like, ooh, I want to spend a summer there, but there's no way I can afford that, so I'll spend an hour and a half there mm. with Diane Lane as my guide. And that's lovely. And it's just looks like you're just all pastoral and nice. All right. So I want you to take that framework and in that framework, Beowulf. <laughs> there's, Wait, there's, what? There's too loud a wedding. Okay. And it really pisses off. And, and there's off. a Grendel in the there, hills. And, there's yeah. A Gren- yeah, there's just an angry guy next door. And he, like, comes in and starts, like, knocking over everything with an axe. And they have to get the hunky new guy, like, in town. To go to, go to talk to, to him. To go talk to him and, like resolve differences but um i don't know they fall in love grendel and beowulf fall in love all right they really you know all's well that ends well right i mean come on 
<laughs> sure. Yeah. Under the Grendel sun. <laughs> Under the Tuscan sun, but with Grendels in it. <laughs> Only one Grendel. It's fine. That's not well, implausible. Well, there's also Grendel's mother, and there's a dragon. And well, yeah, everyone's got a mom. I'm talking about the like the original epic. Okay, you, the, I'm or, saying okay, original you, poem of Beowulf. But what I'm saying is, is mm. that Grendel's mom will be like some fun character actor, like oh, Diane yeah. Weist or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it all work out. There, there are a lot of classic pieces of classic lit that I've never seen adapted to film oh, like, yeah? straight and wanted to see. Well, like what? Like like the Divine Comedy. I've seen a lot yeah. of like like genre horror science fictiony versions of Inferno. Yeah, all, all, all those all those ideas that, that <laughs> Dante wrote in, there was in actually Inferno. A, there was actually a fun video game where it was Dante's Inferno, but they actually followed the text pretty good. Like Ooh, like the, okay. the production design and everything of the game, mm-hmm. and like all the different levels of hell looked a lot like Dante wrote them. So oh, it, was, okay. it was neat. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to see just like an epic film of that. The problem is nobody would want to see a movie like that except for me. Uh, there's, mm. I, I feel like the way to do that one is to do like an HBO miniseries, and mm. you get like Guillermo del Toro or someone with an interesting like visual sense to oh, do it, you, you know, and like really make it like an event. I'd, I'd like I uh, Luca Guadagnino needs mm. to do a gigantic, like multi-film epic of. Of the Divine Comedy. I'm I would waiting, love to see that. I, I think we're overdue uh, for another good Romeo and Juliet. The last one I saw was that one with Haley Steinfeld and Hockey like, McPowdy Another Lips. good Romeo yeah, and Juliet. Um, and Doug, I think... Doug, Douglas something? No, uh, I don't know. The, I forgot the, the actor who played Romeo. Booth? Douglas Booth? I don't know. So, some hunky guy with pouty lips. Who, yeah. And pale skinny. He was really good looking and couldn't act very well in that movie. Narrows it down. Um, good, but, good production design, you know, like accurate uh, costumes, but mm-hmm. they added dialogue and it wasn't good and yeah. everybody seemed out of their element. No, no, no. I think you need – I think we're overdue for another decent Romeo and Juliet. And whether you do it straight mm-hmm. or whether you do it in outer space or in the present day or whatever, mm-hmm. you, I mean, you totally can. I mean, we are a nation divided. Yeah, like, I mean, you could totally play that up and, like, have it be about, like, modern political strife yeah. as opposed to just two – squads of gangsters just roaming the streets and biting their thumbs at each other. <laughs> um, uh, science fiction. Oh, wait. You know what? I, I, I had this idea once before. I wrote articles about it. Do Star Wars mm. under the Star Wars banner. Yeah. But adapt the York Tetrad. That is Henry VI Part One, Henry VI Part Two, Henry VI Part Three, and King Richard III. Do four films. What the fuck? Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, do that in the Star Wars universe about how uh, a king has taken over when he was just a kid. He doesn't know a lot about ruling. How about uh, Jedi's have brought peace? Like, there's no more empire anymore. Hmm. It's all been defeated. There's no more bad guys. Peace, 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 peace is organized. It's been a generation. Jedi's are, are are back again, and they've been put in charge. And the king is ineffectual because he's never had he, he's never known life beyond this. He was made king when he was a little kid. He's just sort of mm. a figurehead. And people have stopped have not been able to use their Jedi powers as much. Except uh, there's what? also there's also like ghosts and and things and there like rebellions. I'm with you on the in, ghosts in uh, in uh, King Henry the Sixth. Uh, and it's a, essentially about how the. The empire they set up was so weak that it was prone to the rise of fascism. Right. And that's what led to, like, this underground figure like Richard III rising to the throne. I feel like that's 
kind of what they were getting at in some ways with the prequel. Yeah, but do it good this time. Oh, no, but do yeah. it good. I'm yeah. with you and do it good. But anyway. Hmm. Um, anyway, hopefully that's a few ideas. Um, that's... I love those, like, contemporary adaptations of classic mm. lit. I think we, it's important that we keep classic literature alive in some way. We keep it, uh, we keep, we keep approaching the material from fresh perspectives to see if mm. it still works. And if it does, then that's awesome. And we can remind ourselves that our history of art is still relevant mm. while also constantly striving to push it forward and mm. fix the mistakes of the past. So, anyway, it's, mm. a, it's a whole thing. Moving on. Here's a letter from Richard. Uh, Hi, Richard. Hello, Richard. Uh, Hello from the hinterlands of Minnesota. Uh, What follows is a bit of personal history that deals directly with the subject of the email. I can't remember a time in my life when I didn't hear things. This is uh, the subject of the email is schizophrenia. Okay. So uh, I can't remember a time in my life when I didn't hear things. Opening and closing doors, footsteps, people having conversation and voices so soft that I could never make out what they were saying. When I was 13, I was diagnosed with schizophrenia and was in a psychiatric hospital for six months while the doctors figured out the right combination of medication and dosage that muted my symptoms. I say muted because if I stop taking my pills, I will have a psychotic breakdown in a few days and be right back from where I started from. In 1982, when I was first diagnosed, the prevailing theory was that something very traumatic happened to me when I was young and I suppressed it. Therapy was believed to be the answer. If I could only get to the root cause of the trauma, then I could deal with the emotions of this event and be cured. Psychology in 1982 was still a fairly new science, having only been accepted as legitimate for 25 or 30 years. As far as schizophrenia goes, and homosexuality for that matter, they were in the dark ages. Today it's believed that something in my brain either does something it shouldn't or doesn't or doesn't do something it should for those six months in the hospital the doctors told me uh what was wrong with me why i have it and how to treat it what they didn't tell me was something that i desperately needed to hear that no one could tell that i was schizophrenic i assumed for the rest of my teenage years and for most of my 20s that my disability was something that was obvious to anyone who looked at me because of this junior high and high school middle school hadn't been invented yet were not Hmm. kind to me there was a day there wasn't a day that went by that i didn't consider killing myself oh uh, I don't mean to be so dark, but I wanted to give you a background to the subject, uh, that being that I have never in my life seen a movie that accurately depicts schizophrenia. Mm. I stopped watching slasher films because more than a few of the killers turned out to be quote-unquote schizophrenic. Schizophrenics are no more likely to be violent than anyone else, even if they are off their meds. And if they are off their meds, they're much more likely to be frightened and confused than to hurt anyone. But the big schizophrenic movie that manages to get most everything wrong is A Beautiful Mind. Mm -hmm. I'm terribly sorry, but there has never been a schizophrenic anywhere in the world at any time in human history that simply ignored their symptoms and got better. To put it bluntly, that is bullshit. And as far as John Nash goes, there is no doubt that he was a genius, but the vast majority of schizophrenics have an IQ between 80 and 95. In 1982, doctors knew my symptoms, but weren't sure I was really schizophrenic for two reasons. One, I was 13. Most schizophrenics don't develop symptoms until they're in their early 20s. And mm. second, my IQ is ne- uh, was in the low 110s. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you that high IQ schizophrenics are a rare thing. Okay. Due to Whitney's recommendation, I may give words on bathroom walls a try, but due to Hollywood's track record, I hold out very little hope that the depiction in the movies is anywhere near reality. Hollywood just can't get it right and... All I can guess is it's because they either don't want to know the truth or they just don't care to know the truth. On this issue, I'd say uh, it was six of one, half a dozen of the other. To end on a positive note, puppies. (laughs) Oh, puppies. You're a faithful patron, Richard. Um, Richard, thank you for being so frank and Mm. honest and sharing your experiences with us. That's not something that um, a lot of people have an opportunity to hear. 
Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I'm really, really glad we could give you a signal boost. Um, yeah, uh, when it comes to – we've talked about this before in the abstract. Whenever we see a film that deals with uh, mental illness, uh, we, we do often have to review those films with a caveat – Kind even if we don't know about the details of a particular mental illness, we always have to review what the film says and give the caveat that it's probably not accurate. Yeah, and in we some always cases, encourage it's something yeah. that we are familiar with. I myself featured mm. depression and anxiety. I might be able to speak on those topics, but yeah, no. The, mm. And that's one of the issues with representation of mm. mental illness in media. You know, if for people who may experience that mental illness and, and work with that mental illness throughout their lives. You might say, oh, they did a good job. But more often than not, you're going to say, that's a lot of crap. But if you have no experience with it, there's no one whispering in your ear, actually, that's full of shit most of the time. And as a result, it's easy to just – maybe you're not like taking notes and for later, Mm. but you're also not questioning it. And as a result, we get the wrong idea about stuff all the time. And sometimes that wrong idea becomes like this vicious cycle where people can't like – stop referencing it because it's in a popular movie or other movies don't bother to do more research and they just go off of what other movies have said about whatever's in the popular consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and, and it's on one hand. Yeah. Okay. We do want people to be able to be creative, but there's a sense of responsibility that we need to acknowledge here. And it Mm -hmm. comes to representing mental health issues and a myriad of other aspects of our lives that rarely show up in movies and, mm-hmm. or rarely show up accurately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I have an uncle who's schizophrenic. Uh, okay. I, uh, but I don't have direct contact with him. He's been in prison my whole life. Oh, okay. um, he, he is schizophrenic and has a host of other mental problems as well. Okay. Um, and and he is that rare animal. He's he's not not just high IQ. He's actually incredibly high IQ. He's like taught himself Swedish in a day kind of guy okay. in prison right. uh, because he went to prison for a horrendous violent crime. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, when it comes to um, mental illness and the way it's represented in popular media, yeah, what what you said is is totally true. That we get a bad idea from one movie and the bad idea persists mm-hmm. and it, and it persists and it persists and it persists until the popular perception of people who think they know is incorrect. Yeah. Um, uh, this, this, this is, this is a, a less gre- grievous issue, but uh, I remember watching a documentary film called shark water. Um, mm. And it was about a, a, a swimmer who was attacked by a shark. He uh, recovered and studied sharks and found that they're actually not vicious killer monsters. That they're actually kind of scared animals, and yeah. usually they attack when they're startled. Yeah, like, uh, like, like most, most animals, animals yeah. would. And uh, he blames Steven Spielberg's Jaws yeah. specifically for changing the popular perception of sharks, and why so many people feel it's kind of okay to hunt them to death. Yeah, uh, to near extinction in many cases, mm-hmm. uh, because they look kind of scary and there's movies about them where they're monsters. There was the first film class I ever took in college. I was yeah. so excited. I finally got here. I just started college yeah. and I'm at UCLA and I can't start their film program yet. I got a couple of years before I can transfer, but I can take some of the classes right now. And one of the first classes I took at college and the very first film class I took was a class called film and social change by a wonderful, mm-hmm. uh, uh, taught by a wonderful film critic uh, named Toshoma Gabriel. And, they showed a wide variety of films that have either illustrate social issues or 
uh, cultural realities that we didn't fully understand or appreciate in the Western world. Mm-hmm. Or And we also talked about films that actually uh, perhaps had some actual social impact. And Jaws is a great example of that, where you think it's just a horror movie. Oh, it's just a movie. First off, it's actually a very good movie. But secondly, it has a lot to answer for. It had a tangible impact on the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You think about like how stories create these kinds of weird uh, 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 stigmas. Like, look at, Think about how many fairy tales that we've heard where the bad guy is a wolf. Yeah. Wolves can be a problem because they might like steal a farmer's livestock or whatever. Well, and when those stories were written by mm. farmers, yeah. when bull- wolves were a problem, yeah. then yeah, you have big bad wolves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the thing is, is that wolves historically, and if you look up the statistics, find someone who was killed by a wolf in America. You, you kind of can't. And mm. I don't think there's more than like maybe one or two cases in Europe ever. Like they just don't do it. We're the predator. <laughs> we're the mm. we're at the top of the food chain. They they fear us. Like maybe if we're if we die in the woods, they might nip at our corpse. But that's about it. So like we've created this like idea that wolves are the worst thing ever when they're just part of the ecosystem. And obviously we went off on a tangent, but we create these weird stigmas, and a lot of it comes down to lazy storytelling where. Mm. A writer has to justify why someone is killing somebody and they want to make it topical. So they go off of whatever is currently in the conversation. And mm-hmm. since psychology has been such a rapidly evolving field over the last century, you just sort of cherry pick whatever big buzzword is in right now. And so many people are irresponsible the way they depict it that they get it wrong and they um, teach people the wrong stuff. And that sucks. And that's, again, that's why we can't just say it's just a movie. We do have to consider the impact. Yeah, yeah. Um, That said, when you're making a film like Split and you know it's bullshit, Mm -hmm. uh, don't go to a movie like M. Night Shyamalan's Split for any kind of accurate depiction about dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. uh, Because... It, it's a it's like a Saturday morning cartoon version of that. Yeah, it's it super, has no he's a super villain. It has no, yeah, like it a, has no actual facts in it. And, and when yeah. it sort of pulls its twist at the end, you realize, oh wait a minute, this is sort of like a comic book universe. Yeah. They're they're kind of playing fair. I remember I saw one of the first screenings of Split. I think it already screened at like a film festival. But yeah. then like I was like the second or third, and no one had talked about what it was about yet. And I'm mm-hmm. watching this film, and I'm actually like in my chair, kind of seething at it. For how it is being really irresponsible about how it treats mental illness as some kind of superpower, which yeah. is another kind of dehumanization. Eh? Because look at him, he's elevated. He's not human anymore. Cool, thanks. Um, but then towards the end, when you realize that, and you know, now that Glass is out, we all know the, the whole deal, but mm. you realize that this is a heightened superhero universe... It's, I'm more forgiving. The problem is we still had that whole opening, like two, like not two thirds, like 95% of the movie uh-huh. that was all about this and doing it really irresponsibly. But in retrospect, the context is more forgivable. I understand if you can't forgive it, but yeah. I, part of me is like, a part of me wants to be like, <sighs> fine. M. Night, fine, dude. <laughs> just fine. Mm. Okay. We'll just, we're just going to. You know what? Just fine. Just fine. <laughs> just, just fine. And, uh, yeah. 
Anyway, it's something we're going to keep wrestling with. And it, one of the ways that we can prevent those stigmas from profligating is to keep talking about them. And so mm-hmm. I really want to thank you once again for writing in, being so honest about your experiences and letting us see this from your perspective yeah, because yeah, that's incredibly that's, valuable have, and it's hard and I admire your strength. Yeah, we we always encourage, uh, what we invite people a lot to uh, write in and uh, let us know a detail we might not know or let yeah. us know how accurate something is that we don't, we're not educated on. So thank you for educating us. Yeah, we always uh, want to be better. Here's a letter from Name Redacted. Um, hello, Antonio Banderas. Hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister. <laughs> what? Why did you begin with Antonio Banderas? Maybe okay. well, is is maybe it's Antonio. Did Antonio Banderas write us? Sure. So yeah. says Antonio Banderas. So thanks for writing in, Antonio. You're really, really good. And and that one Almodovar film you were in. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know the one. The one he was in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I listened to B. Peterson. I also really uh, like you in that gift from Assassins. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it, oh, I wonder if that's ever happened to a movie star. Oh, like somebody stops them on a on a street and says, "Wow, I, I recognize you from a GIF." I bet that I bet that's happened. Yeah, like yeah. Zach Galifianakis. I loved you in Jeremiah Johnson. That was Robert Redford. But um, it's cool that you think it looked like Robert Redford. Yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, Antonio Banderas. Hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister. Hello, Antonio Banderas. I listened to B. I listened to B. Peterson's Iron List for queer cinema. It is something I haven't seen a lot of growing up. Uh, here is some queer media that has been important to me personally. Great. Okay, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. My mother loves this movie, and it was my first ever ever look at queerness openly. I was eleven. Ooh, it's a good good one to see at age eleven. Yeah. Um, Battle of the Sexes. I can't emphasize how much I needed to see Battle of the Sexes. It came out in 2017, and while I was out online, I wasn't out with my family, but after this movie, I felt more confident. Battle yeah, of Sexes was the, the, uh, was the, the, um, the tennis Bo- movie. Bobby Riggs, Billie Jean King. Yeah. And you know what? It's a t- tennis movie. Yeah. It's a very good film, but mm. it just got overshadowed by other good films that year. But like, I can't, it's, I can't think of anything meaningfully wrong with that film. It's well, very well crafted. Other than Emma Stone. I think she, you don't think Emma Stone's good in it? I don't think she's good in that. I think she's I good in that. I, I think, think she's good in it. But in any case, I, I think, I think she's, she's doing her best, but I think she's eh, not, not, I, not bringing. I, 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 I disagree. I think yeah. she's great. So. All right. Um, the favorite. Is the kind of weird shit I love, and <laughs> yes. I'm always and I'm always into. Oh shit, that should have been my list. That's a good the choice. The favorite, yeah. yeah, that's a good choice. The that's favorite, a fun movie. favorite is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, love Simon. Still haven't uh, seen I'm, Love I'm Simon. I'm really glad this movie exists. Young teens need queer movies at their level. Yeah, uh, it's Love Simon has the unfortunate uh, trend of having a protagonist who's just like a boring box of cardboard, mm-hmm. but he's. Uh, we don't get a lot of mainstream John Hughes ripoff queer movies yeah. uh, about gay characters. And it's nice to have a, just a nice light teen romance about a gay character as the main character. He's not, a, not the sidekick. You know, funnily enough, there was, a, there were actually two of those that year, but the mm. second one got totally overshadowed by love Simon. And I saw the second one. It was called Alex strange love. Oh, I didn't see that one. It's pretty good. It's a, it's a, you know, teen romance or whatever, except he's dating like the quirky girl and everything's going great. And then he's at a party and he realizes he's actually in love with that guy. And, uh, you know, he, he wrestles with it for a bit, but it all mm. turns out well. And it's, uh, it's pretty well handled. I like it. All right. Uh, interview with the vampire. <laughs> yes. Uh, it start it starred sexy vampires and the books are openly queer, starting with the vampire Lestat, uh, John- Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, and Antonio Banderas is the only love triangle I will accept. Antonio Banderas. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. And, uh, it's uh, been a bit, but I saw it so many times when it came out. It was totally my jam for like oh, a few okay. years. So I, pro- I remember it really well. Yeah, I, I didn't see it when it came out in theaters. I rented it. And I watched it twice thinking I had missed something. Oh. And I just, I just, for some reason, I couldn't really get into like the story. I couldn't really follow it. Mm. Didn't really understand a lot of it. Oh, weird. All right. Uh, Chasing Amy. I think it was by accident, but this captures bisexuality struggles, including gay and straight people wanting you to pick a side, and it works well for that. You know, Chasing uh, Amy is an interesting film because I think it was initially celebrated for its frankness, and then a lot of people turned on it because it's all about like a straight, it's a straight white dude you know, yeah. learning to deal with it, and is that really the right perspective? And lately, I've seen people go back around on it, saying mm. at least people grow. Through yeah, it, yeah. and so it's more positive than bad, even though it doesn't always handle everything well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I haven't revisited it in a while. Yeah, and it, I, I, although uh, it bears the trappings of a cliche that uh, there's there's this old cliche that's been incorrect cliche that was spread about uh, lesbians that they just haven't met the right man yet. And that's oh, like yeah. A, that's something just... said to young lesbians' face. Oh, you just haven't met yeah. the right man yet. It's like oh, uh-huh. oh, oh no, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm no, I'm gay here. Yeah, no, that's here. that's and, that's, uh, that's not a thing. No, it's not. No. It's not a thing. But uh, it's something that was evoked when Kevin Smith made Chasing Amy, and mm-hmm. I think the film is actually quite tactful about that. It's not about his overwhelming attractiveness or his wit winning her over. No, she actually like Joey Lauren yeah. Adams really good in that movie, yeah. by the way. But she actually actually has like um, she has her own inner struggle with it, where mm-hmm. it's just like, do I like this guy? Like, she's actually, she's not just, like, all over him because he's Ben Affleck, you know? They actually have, like, smart conversations in it, and it's, it's I, mm. again, I haven't seen it in a long yeah. time. Maybe I decided it doesn't hold up right now, but it's mm. got its good points. Yeah, and uh, last one is The Seven Husbands of Elvin Hugo. I haven't seen this. El- 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 Evelyn, excuse me. The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo is a book about a bisexual actress Mm. from the 1930s to the 1980s and her life story. A quote from the book, I'm bisexual, don't ignore half of me so you can fit me into a box. Uh, and and that's the letter. Uh, well, yeah, thank you. That's um, great. Thank you. And, well, and seriously, we would invite everyone, especially if we haven't uh, already talked about the films yet, if you have other recommendations for queer mm-hmm. cinema, queer uh, uh, TV, any other forms of media, really, because people need to do a better job about foregrounding mm-hmm. stories about queer experience. Um, so thank you. Seriously, mm-hmm. we, invite, we invite more recommendations. If anyone mm-hmm. has more recommendations, we would love to hear them. Um, here's a letter from Riley. Hello, Riley. Hi, Riley. Uh, hi, fellas. Oh, we're fellas. Mm. Um, uh, y'all's discussion and polar opposite reactions to I'm Thinking of Ending Things got mm. me thinking. My boyfriend has been showing me throughout the year the works of Paul Thomas Anderson, and that is one of his favorite directors. What I've come to enjoy most about Paul Thomas Anderson's movies is that he does an excellent job of making me care about his characters, and I believe that this is because he himself genuinely cares, if not sympathizes, with the characters he creates. His sympathy and want for the characters to have a better lives is very prominent, even if the movies are completely different. So I was wondering, how important is it for you to sympathize with a movie's characters? How important is it that a director... uh, and or writer create a character who they care about in order for the movie to be effective. Um, that's a good question. That's a uh, that's a really good question. And a lot so, of people, so says Riley. A um, lot of people wrestle with that, and yeah, there are definitely different perspectives. Yeah, here's my answer: You don't ever have to have any lick of sympathy for a main character. Okay. 
I think it's possible to hate them openly, and I think it's possible to not want them to succeed. What you want is just to see an interesting person. Yeah. Uh, whether or not they're a scoundrel. They don't have to be warm and you don't have to be on their emotional wavelength yeah. in order to enjoy the film or understand them. Like, like Sometimes case, you don't even understand like, like, like Case in point, a movie yeah. like Nightcrawler, mm. like where Jake Gyllenhaal is playing someone who has absolutely no moral compass. He's mm. despicable. Mm. He's a villain. He's more evil than Joker is in Joker. And, and you don't want him to succeed. I don't want him to succeed, but I find him fascinating. And the reason why, because mm. I think it goes a little bit beyond that, because I agree, we don't have to sympathize with the characters mm. as long as we find them fascinating. However, if we don't sympathize with a character and we feel they're being celebrated, it is a perfectly reasonable response to be agitated. That's fine. To, yeah. to just say like, okay, I don't like this person and everything I don't like about them is what the filmmakers like about them. That's a perfectly valid response. Mm. Other people may disagree, but that is a perfectly valid response to a work of art. So I actually think in those situations where you're dealing with a character who is unsympathetic mm. to the point of perhaps evil, then it becomes a matter of is the movie sympathetic? And that is mm. a matter of tone yeah. as often yeah. as anything else. Sometimes judgment, sometimes a lot of movies are morality plays on mm. one level or another, but oftentimes it's just a matter of tone. Yeah. Is it is it satirical? And if it is satirical, are we okay that it's making fun of this subject or behavior? Or, or is or is it tragic and gruff? You know, yeah. I think of something is it a really sad extreme, thing that this is happening? Like you know? something really extreme, like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, yeah. or or Willie Mustig's Maniac, which I saw for the first time recently. Yeah. Th those are monstrous, mm. monstrous figures. Those are scary people mm. who I would not want to spend any time with. But and, I and am yet, riveted by their existence. Yeah, and yet those are those are yeah really engrossing movies. Yeah. Um, and I think a big part of do you need to sympathize with this character goes back to you, dear viewer. Hmm? Uh, if you're watching a movie and you see somebody who's completely despicable and, and we mean everybody, them, not just the person who wrote the letter. No, no, this, yeah, this yeah. is everybody listening. Yeah. Uh, if you see a movie and it serves a despicable character that you hate and the filmmaker has chosen to highlight that person, maybe the filmmaker is inviting you to see yourself in a horrible person mm. and examine what's horrible about you. And a lot of people don't like to do that kind of analysis of themselves. That's fair. Uh, especially if it's, if they're just in their, if they paid money to see a movie and they're just <laughs> expecting like a thriller and all of a sudden they're holding up a dark mirror saying, this is you makes some people feel like shit. Yeah. And that's mm. not always why we go to see a movie. I do get that, which is mm. one of the reasons why as critics, it's our responsibility to tell people, here's what you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like whether or not it's in the marketing, here's what you're going to get. Mm. Um, but, uh, but, Wait, but it I, is, I, I think it is okay to, to, but to that point, I think it is okay for someone who is an audience member to value that, to mm -hmm. value when you're experiencing your art, when you're engaging with art. To want something that is sympathetic and nourishing, to have that mm. as a sense of taste. Yeah, this is the this is what I and maybe there are exceptions. There's exceptions to everyone's sense of taste, but it's okay to say like I because you mentioned that one of the things you like about Paul Thomas Anderson's work is his sympathy for his characters. Mm. You look at something like The Master, where the pretty much every character in The Master is a deeply flawed and troubling person, mm. but. You're right. You watch that movie, and whether or not Paul Thomas Anderson agrees with what they're doing, he has sympathy for why they're doing it. Yeah. He sees it as sad, and that sadness comes across, and then we relate to that. That is absolutely one thing that makes that movie, of many, mm. really, really great. 
Except for Inherent Vice, in which you're just really high. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we sympathize with being high. Um, <laughs> need to need to have more weed, I guess. I, I, I'll grant you Inherent Vice might be a slight exception mm-hmm. to that rule. Maybe not. I don't know. It's all a matter of perspective. But my point is this. It's If that's what you value, that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's totally cool. And if that's important to you in a movie and you get really turned off by these kinds of anti-heroes or villains who get foregrounded... That's very reasonable, mm. but it's only one way of doing it, and there's a lot of different ways, and a lot of filmmakers play with both, um, and um, mm. yeah, they've led to some great movies, led to some really mm. bad movies, and it's okay to say you like them because they lose you. Mm. They're trying to be unsympathetic. Cool. It's also possible to do that too well, <laughs> and then we just don't like it. Like yeah, um, and- Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy is a good example mm. here, where um, if you've ever seen it, it's a, I think it's the second to last movie. It's only R-rated film. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's about a serial killer in London, and uh, the serial killer is. And now that it can be R-rated, we're actually like seeing the violence. And Hitchcock lingers on it, but he doesn't glorify it. He makes it look really unpleasant, and so mm-hmm. it's actually really hard to watch. It's also riveting, but it's hard to watch. And the, the thing about the movie that gets me though is that the protagonist in that film, like the guy who gets like in, uh, uh, wrongly accused of being the murderer and goes on the run. He's such an ass. Like, I don't <laughs> care about yeah. it. Like, a part of me is just like, I want the killer to get caught, but can this guy get, mm. like, just punched a lot? Like, I don't, I, mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not, re- I don't really want him to succeed that badly. Yeah, like, I mean, but, you know, where's the rule that only, like, average or, like, flatly decent people get to have adventures? What assholes get to have adventures, too. Assholes do get to yeah. have adventures, too, but there, uh, there does run a risk <laughs> that their assholishness Mm. will turn us away. And that's something that I think Frenzy, unfortunately, brushes up against too far. Okay. So that's one example of that. There's a lot of films I've seen that celebrate just, like, horrendous people, and I I leave a really sour taste in my mouth. Because it's a matter of tone. It's a matter of of whether they're judging it or not. Yeah, that's not necessarily me not sympathizing with the character. I think you only need a really kind of base level of acknowledgement of a, a character's humanity mm-hmm. in order to uh, enjoy a feature film. And sometimes yeah. not even that. You can have these really broad, cartoonish mm. caricatures, but even then, you, do, you they do need to be recognizable as something we can connect to. Yeah. 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 Anyway, let's move on. Uh, here's a letter from Dennis Bryan. Hello, Dennis Bryan. Hi. Bibbs and Seibold. Uh, I am a fan of your Patreon. Oh, I'm a Thank fan you. and on your Patreon now. Thank you. Uh, mm. The film Tenet underperformed here, here that is the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen that in Forbes and a few other places. It seems safe to say. And its failure screwed over a few movies planning to open after that, safer bets like Wonder Woman and Candyman. Mm-hmm. But those movies uh, moved due to an uncertain landscape. This is likely bad for theaters, some of which rushed to sh- uh, rushed to open to show Tenet. Yep. But I think uh, I think it might be good for indies as they provide needed context. This is probably the first time a Miranda July film will hit multiplexes. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's what, what's it called, Cajillionaire? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I think or, that's or one, Cajillions, yeah. something like that. Um, do you guys think there will be any breakout indies before potential hits open again? Also, I like the Andre podcast. Wallace Shawn is a good actor and a great writer. I feel his role in Book Club, uh, playing the bad date, was particularly insulting. <laughs> I, <laughs> I cannot, didn't see that. <laughs> I cannot wait till uh, till Rifkin's festival uh, festival because a film he's starring in uh, starring a film he's in is he's starring in is in it later this year. Oh, cool! Uh, thanks, um, Dennis Bryan. Uh, thank you, and we do have more uh, Andre episodes coming. That one will be more sporadic. It's just a matter of when we can get people yeah. to record them. Um, but. Uh, hmm. 
What was the? I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> all I can think about is Wallace Shawn. That's all I can think of. What was, what was the? What was the main uh, issue? It was Wallace Shawn, right? It was all about Wallace Shawn. <laughs> no, it was about a uh, tenant and oh, tenant, and, yeah. and theaters opening and before we, they should, perhaps. Okay, uh, so so yes, for the, the record, the current tenet, the current landscape. Tenant. Well, first off, there's there's two things that I think are are fair to say about tenants opening in America. First off. Uh, uh, Winnie and I still haven't seen it. We're actually thinking about making a trek to a drive-in uh, theater, which I which I I will not go to a multiplex, but a drive-in theater is relatively safe. That I'm okay with. Mm. We might do that sometime in the next week or so, and if we do, of course, we'll review it on critically acclaimed. Um, but uh, it did open in America, and there's one prevalent narrative, and one we really do have to be fair about this narrative. The prevalent narrative is it tanked, and mm. by conventional standards, yeah, it made like twenty nine million over two weeks in America. In America, and internationally, it's only made like two hundred, which is pretty damn slow mm. for a big budget Christopher Nolan movie that people had a lot of high hopes for. However, I do believe that the studio probably never expected it to have a two hundred million dollar weekend. Mm. That's how could they? What they've said they were trying to do, and we'll see how this plays out, because it might. They said, we expect, basically they said, we expect to be the only game in town for major blockbusters. So we're going for the long game, which is how movies used to do it. Movies didn't used to make their whole... The majority of their mm. box office take in their opening weekend. Look up the earning history of a film called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Boom. <laughs> it was like at number nine for six months. Yeah, it just and stayed it ma- and it made like And it made $100 million. I think it, I think it only ever cracked. And, and like after like three months, it like cracked the top five because people started talking about it. But it was mm. never number one. Yeah. And it is still one of the most profitable independent movies ever produced. It, it's And I think it still holds the record for... The highest grossing film never to have debuted at number one. Like, to never have been uh, number one at the box office. I suspect that's yeah. true. I suspect that's true. Although, I think, um, I think Sixth Sense might have done that, too. Oh, maybe so. Sixth yeah. Sense, or one of those. Sixth Sense was also a kind of a juggernaut. Yeah. There was, there was, a, that, that yeah, was summer, 99 summer. So, was the, huge, they're right? hoping that, yeah, ten, yeah, it's like, oh, no, they didn't have the big weekend. Well, that's how we've been trained to think. Yeah. And that, and that's how studios like to think. But what do we care? Yeah, like like Titanic. When Titanic came out, mm. it came out to a pretty good weekend for December. But everyone was like, "Well, that's that most expensive movie ever made. It's gonna have. It's gonna trail off from here. It'll be lucky to break even someday." And then uh, it just didn't drop off. And it just mm. made like a, a comfortable, like, I forget what it was, like 20 to 30 million every single weekend for like four months. Mm. And that's how it works. So if Tenet can stay relatively strong, even if it's only like 10 million a month, uh, a week mm. for a while, it might end up being an okay success story for the studio. But it is absolutely not what studios are looking for right now. And studios are, especially considering that with that model, it can't sustain multiple blockbusters. Mm. It just can't. So, yeah, we're we're out of big movies for the year. There's a few major blockbusters that are still, like, trying to insist maybe they can be out. Like, they're really trying to put out Bond. They're trying to mm. squeak out Wonder Woman on Christmas Day. Yeah, but but th- I'd be surprised, honestly. I would not be surprised at all if they just chicken out and don't release them in America or barely do. Yeah. Um, and that sucks. I want to see them, too. I also want to see them on a big screen. But you're right. The upside is that there is now 
this vacuum that can be filled by independent movies that otherwise, multiplex or not, even if it's just on mm-hmm. VOD or they're getting picked up by streaming services, we talked about Palm Springs probably longer than we ever would have, even though it's a great movie, this summer because there wasn't like three big movies opening up the next weekend. Yeah. yeah. So like, like a, there's, there's a ton of stuff that's getting more attention. Not a lot. Yeah. Dominating the conversation. Uh, this, uh, if you look at sort of the way th- the theaters that have opened are set up and the way driving drive-ins are set up, mm-hmm. they're doing a lot of smaller indie films. They're also doing a lot of repertory. Yeah, that's true. Theaters are looking the way I've always wanted them to look. <laughs> I just didn't want I didn't want a pandemic to mm. cause it. I just wanted it to get that way organically. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this idea that things could be a lot more varied and textured in the marketplace mm-hmm. that there wouldn't be one gigantic blockbuster that would dominate the conversation for months. Mm-hmm. I've or noticed... that it would switch out new blockbusters every week and yeah, then we never yeah. get to talk about anything small again, yeah. I've noticed that a lot like it's like they're running on fumes. A lot of the uh, uh like nerd gossip rags are just reaching and reaching for stuff to say about Black Widow still, mm-hmm. like, months after it was supposed to come out or, yeah. or, or Wonder They were Woman. used it's to like... having, like, five, sometimes absolute BS, but mm-hmm. five news stories about the main franchises practically every day. Yeah. Sometimes it was legitimate news. Sometimes it was speculation, rumor. Mo- most of it was just packing peanuts. A lot it of it was just packing yeah. peanuts. A lot of and and sometimes that's fun. I'm not I'm not decrying it. Hell, I've written it. But like, <laughs> that's that, that's it, me too. It's, yeah, it, it's it's part of the gig sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling, and as much as it sucks that so many people have lost work, what I am hoping is that we might end up seeing a bit of a paradigm shift as we realize that there that like the industry is bigger than that. Yeah. Ironically, it's bigger because of smaller movies, but it's bigger than that. And mm. those movies have value, and those movies can drive people's attention. It's also it's like like at movie theaters that are showing older films. It's mm. causing a lot of those uh, publications to talk about older movies more often. Mm. You know, because everyone can talk and see those still. Like mm. so, that can be more part of the the conversation. Um, what I'm curious about actually is how at the end of the year. The awards are going to be interesting. Now, I know mm-hmm. the Academy Awards has decided to, like, extend the eligibility deadline, I think, for a few months into 2021. Yeah. Um, which could potentially allow for more movies. Like, if we do get really lucky and get a vaccine, even though they said the majority of people won't be able to be vaccinated until probably halfway through 2021 at the earliest. But even if we do get really, really lucky, we might see a bit more of the conventional Oscar bait. But what if we don't? And what if the Academy Awards actually is super interesting and is full of, like, weird... Like, there'll be a few big ones that we can expect, like Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, which is totally deserving. Mm. But what if we end up getting some weird stuff? Or stuff that, because it opened at the beginning of the year, people would normally completely write it off and would never get any nominations. Stuff like Emma. Or or uh, The yeah. Invisible Man. The Invisible yeah. Man! What if what if uh, Elizabeth Moss gets uh, 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 nominated for... Well, I guess she probably get nominated for Shirley. Which would also probably be forgotten since it came out in June, but it's a brilliant performance. Like, what if Invisible Man gets a Best Picture nomination? I would be fine with that, <laughs> but normally movies that come out at the beginning of the year get overlooked because the conversation yeah, yeah. moves away from them. First cow for the win. It's all Why not? Kelly Reichardt's first cow will win all the Oscars. Wouldn't that be neat? Like, yeah. it's it kind of really frees it up. There will be fewer yeah, juggernauts and more interesting, weird films that might otherwise have never had a chance, mm. but are still totally deserving. I'm excited about that, actually. Yeah, it's... It, it's... 
you take away the big blockbusters and all of a sudden you you just get you get to face and realize how interesting the film landscape has always been. Yeah. It's just hiding under the surface because it's drowned out by this big noise machine, this yeah. hype of, of what James Rocky called the anticipation industrial complex. Yeah. Well, they're, uh, they're the, it's more important to keep you excited for upcoming stuff than to actually impress you with what's out right now. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, Year, years ago I started saying the best time to get excited about a movie is after you see it. And, and when you take away the anticipation, we just have films we can get excited about mm-hmm. because we've seen them and we like them and we've yeah. discovered them and there's things that are kind of ours yeah. now. That's a more nuanced conversation because, well, of yeah. course, you have to be at least somewhat interested in a movie to bother going to see it in a theater anyway. Not everyone mm-hmm. is us. That's true. And we'll see literally everything. But then there's a lot of people out there who go to a theater not knowing what they're going to see and they choose when they get there. It happens. Yeah. It happens. Sure. Uh, but that's a great question, and obviously it's an ever-evolving landscape, and we'll keep an eye on it. Let's move on. Right, here's, here's a bit of a sad letter. This one is from yeah. Cecil. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Rockmeister. Hello. Uh, my grandmother has just died. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. And I'm thinking of Coco. And a quote Coco is about uh, – and a quote in Coco is about how we need to keep our family's memory alive, and I know that when I see Coco again, it will hit me – in a way no movie has before. Mm. Uh, I've had grandparents die before, but I didn't know them. My grandmother means so much to me, and I will keep her light with me. Uh, there is no justice in the laws of nature, no term for fairness in the equations of motion. The universe is neither good nor evil. It simply does not care. The stars don't care, or the sun of the sky. But they don't have to. We care. There is light in the world, and it's us. All the best well wishes to you and your loved ones, Cecil. Uh, Cecil, thank you for writing in. Deepest condolences. Absolute condolences. That's that's awful. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it sounds like you're dealing with it as, you know, philosophically as possible. And that's good. But, you know, you're right. I remember when, when my – I was lucky. I, I got through, like, my whole childhood without losing, like, any, mm-hmm. like, really close relatives. And as a result, death was a little academic to me until quite late on. And then when my father died, when I was in my early 30s, I was totally unprepared for it. Mm. Absolutely just, like, no understanding of, like, how I was going to deal with that grief. Mm. And sometimes I dealt with it well, sometimes I dealt with it badly. And I wish at the time that I had been better prepared by something. But one thing that I had noticed is that Almost any movie about father relationships, and especially any movie about a father who dies, hits me way harder. Yeah, yeah. And that's sad. And initially, I was sort of mad about it. Like, mm. it was like, screw you! Like, <laughs> I was... But... but That's a cheap shot. It, and it kind of yeah. is in some ways. But I also believe that you look at a movie like Coco, which is not a cheap shot. That Coco no, is a beautiful no. film about actually, like... It, it's grief, but it's also about making sure that we look at death as something that is not the end of someone's story mm. and the way that they influence us over time. And that is beautiful. And every once in a while, the yeah, movie does make a cheap shot, but as often as not, I now appreciate some of these movies on a deeper level mm. um, because they were often made by people who had experienced what I hadn't experienced yet. Yeah. So, in any case, uh, uh, Cecil, thank you so much for writing in, for letting us know. Uh, you have our absolute condolences and sympathies, mm-hmm. and we reach out to you. We hug you from the internet. Here's, and Here's our internet arms. Mm-hmm. There you go. There you go. But um, mm-hmm. seriously, we you have our heart, mm-hmm. and uh, we, hope, uh, we hope you get through this okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, here's, here's a less sad letter. Okay. Uh, okay. This one comes from Jay Andrew. Hello, Jay Andrew. Hi. 
Uh, hello, uh, Mr. Bibbs and Rockmeister MacQL. Uh, every, every spelling of Rockmeister McCool is, is uh, correct. <laughs> but sometimes you say them weird. W-R-O-C-H, rock. Mm-hmm. Meister, M-E-I-Y-S-T-E-R. Love it. Mac, M-A-K. Okay. And Kewel, C-E-W-E-L, like you, the way you used to say it in the 90s. Kewel. Kewel. Yeah. Um, this past weekend, I sat down and tried something I'd always heard about but never got around to trying. I watched The Wizard of Oz while simultaneously listening to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Which is very cool. <laughs> if either of you ever tried this experiment, I have. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts were about the experience. For me, it was certainly fascinating how much the coincidence were, like time, starting just as Miss Gulch makes her first appearance, or how uh, when Professor Marvel is reading Dorothy's future in his crystal ball, the band is singing Home Again, Home Again, I'd like to be where I can, I'd like to be here when I can, or how when the Munchkins march in time with money while celebrating the death of the Wicked Witch of the East. This makes me wonder, are there any other type of film urban legends Mm. that you know in a similar vein as Dark Side of the Mm. Oz? Uh, Or are there any... Film legends that have always fascinated you. I've heard about watching The Shining forwards and backwards at the same time, projected on the same frame. Have either of you ever experienced that? Sincerely, Andrew. Uh, so if anyone is unfamiliar with this, um, it's... it's Someone... Dis- I don't know who discovered this. Can you imagine, like, how random this must have been? There's a lot of weed involved, I'm I imagine sure. so. Yeah. But if you... Uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Amazing album un- under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. Like, just great album. Um, if you sync it up and look it up to make sure you're right, but if you start playing the album at exactly when I think the MGM Lion roars like the second time or third time, mm. I, um, I, yeah, I don't remember the exact it, start point. It, but... Google that, but like if you play it at exactly that point and if you just mute the Wizard of Oz, mm. you realize that it syncs up weirdly well mm-hmm. to the extent that it's almost implausible that it's an accident. I mean, like. The the album isn't long enough to get you through the whole movie. And typically mm-hmm. speaking, some people like play it on repeat, but I think at that and, point and, it, and the, and, it, it's all coincidence. But yeah. like, but like the album ends. The last thing on the album is like the last song fades out is a mm-hmm. heartbeat, and that syncs up perfectly to when Dorothy listens to the Tin Man's chest <laughs> to hear if he has a heart. The the part where uh, the the scarecrow falls on the ground, you hear the lunatic is on the grass. Yeah. Uh, when uh, Toto pops out of the basket on Mrs. Gulch's bike, you hear free on the soundtrack. Um, yeah, it's a it's it's not just it's, like one or two re- weird things. Really, really weird coincidences throughout. To the extent that listen, everyone has a conspiracy mm. theory. That they just can't shake. I kind of refuse to believe this is entirely an accident. <laughs> like Pink Floyd got a 16 millimeter printer, Wizard of Oz, or whatever, and did, I part of me believes that. But mm. they say they didn't. Fine, it's not really important. The important thing is it's really cool. Yeah, and it's a fun way to watch Wizard of Oz. It's a fun way to watch Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, or if you want to listen to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, and um, it is neat. Um, but regarding other. Movie urban legends. The one that I remember very distinctly was the urban legend that there was a ghost child in Three Men and a Baby. <laughs> I remember this remember one. Yeah. Like, there's a scene in Three Men and a Baby. It's been a long time since I've seen it. There's a scene in Three Men and a Baby where, like, through a curtain that looks like a creepy spectral face. Mm. And apparently it's it's just like... <laughs> 
Well, they, they, Ted, actually, they show it later in the movie because Ted Danson plays an actor in the movie. Yeah, he has like a standee like of a, yeah. him in, front, in like a movie promotion or whatever. And it was like that, like through a curtain. So Yeah, you just saw it in the background. And, yeah. and But yeah, there's a scene later on where he walks up to it and looks at it. It's on camera. Yeah. It's not just this weird thing that you have to know about. So, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, like it, it's, 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 it looks it's, weird. It's kind yeah. of odd once you look at it, but it's not a, it's not a whole there, thing. There was another one about The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. How um, evidently there was... Um, and I've heard different versions of it, but there was like an on-camera suicide. Evidently, in one of the forest scenes, you could see something in the background. And it looks like somebody like hanging from a noose. It's like this mm. spooky haunted image. Uh, first of all, it's a bird's wing. It's not that. It's just something that might look kind of like it. Mm. Also, if that happened on a set, people would notice. It wouldn't make it into the final cut of a movie. Yeah. Um, it's really on the... Yeah. yeah. However, that's another urban legend that actually turned out to be true. Uh there were a lot of animated movies that had in-jokes from the animators mm. that would normally have gone by so fast nobody would ever have noticed them. Mm. However, with the advent of digital home video technology, like Laserdisc, mm. which people forget, one of the cool things about Laserdisc is you could jump to any frame. Yeah. Like yeah. Someone could give you a frame. <laughs> hey, go to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, frame 1,000, whatever it was. And at that frame... Allegedly, mm. you could see, like, nudity from Jessica Rabbit. And here's the thing. There's nothing alleged about that. That was actually a thing. <laughs> and in later versions of the movie, they have the, omitted that frame or they have airbrushed over or whatever the hell they did. And now that's not a thing. But when the movies were coming out, that wasn't possible on home video. Mm. To be that precise, to have that accurate a picture, to, to notice these things. And, yeah, so that was an urban legend that turned out to be true, that there are some dirty jokes in animated movies. Uh, there are dirty jokes in animated movies. There's a lot of urban legends about things like hidden sex codes in Disney films, like the cloud in The Lion King that spells mm. out the word sex. It was actually or, SFX. I, I guess. I think it was, I mean, I think it was very, actually like uh, a... It's very a, vague looking. Yeah. Um, there's a, a scene in The Little Mermaid where it looks like... Uh, the priest who's marrying uh, the prince and the princess. Oh, yeah. It's has, like, has it looks like he has an erection. Uh, yeah. Turns out it's just his knees. It's just bad animation. Yeah. And uh, again, nothing you were supposed to really look at frame by frame. And, exactly. Yeah. So like, yeah. they probably never occurred to anyone that you would uh, think of that. I, ha I looked at a 1988 35mm print of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and there's no nudity in it. Oh. That's the urban legend. <laughs> so there actually so, wasn't. There's no nudity. In, I thought there in was. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Okay. No, I mean, it's it's a little ribald, but oh yeah, uh, it is. It, there, there's no like nobody actually bothered to animate Jessica Rabbit's genitals. Okay, well, yeah. fair enough. I actually never did it for myself. I read uh, stuff, and I guess I read wrong. But that's yeah. what an urban legend is, isn't it? Yeah. It's all hearsay. Uh, two more urban legends that I think are yeah. fun. Before we move on, uh, in the movie King Kong versus Godzilla. The original one, not the new one that's coming out like next mm. year, allegedly. The good one, not, yeah. the, not, the, not the bad American we version. We don't know if the American oh, version is Oh, I don't know if it's or not. Or but like, it could the, be great. It could be the great. original film, oh. King Kong fights Godzilla. And at the end, King Kong beats Godzilla. That's right. Spoilers. Godzilla comes back. Don't worry about it. Like There, there were like 18 Godzilla movies after that. Uh, but uh, God, King Kong beat Godzilla. However... The urban legend that I heard for many years, like mm. many, many years, sometimes from credible sources, was that that was the uh, ending for the American version. And in Japan, the <laughs> Japanese version, Godzilla won, mm. because that was like more of the national monster. 
And that is not true. Apparently, it was always supposed to be King Kong. That's just not a no. thing. They didn't shoot two versions. No. Two versions of that movie. Uh, but the most famous, hmm. probably the most famous one that is just sort of like, wow, people actually believe this, uh, is that Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing. <laughs> That's right. Uh 2001 A Space Odyssey was his audition mm-hmm. for uh, for making a film of a moon landing, mm-hmm. pretending that America went to the moon, yeah. when in fact they didn't, yeah. and uh, shot everything on a soundstage. And f- first of all, 2001 A Space Odyssey and that like grainy footage from the moon landing uh-huh. don't look alike. Yeah. So you wouldn't need like an expert director to do that. Well, there was actually a funny thing. I think there was like at one of the... Um I forget. It might have been the Apollo Eleven, but one of the uh, Apollo missions when they asked, "What like what does it look like up there?" and they, apparently when the astronauts did say, "It looks like 2001," they nailed it. <laughs> like, oh, okay. So maybe that's where that part of that joke comes from. Um, but uh, yeah, that this is. There's no actual evidence that that's true. There's no Although, reason to believe that that's true. It's a ridiculous if, assumption. If you watch the documentary film Room Two Three Seven, and yeah. you alluded to this in your letter. Um, some people figured out that The Shining, when you play it forwards and backwards simultaneously and project the movie twice over itself, that there's weird mirror, like visual mirrors. Uh Now, of course, a lot of directors direct that way. They have motifs where things move from the left to the right, or people's Mm -hmm. clothes go from light to dark or dark to light over the Mm -hmm. course of a film. Sometimes, sometimes the ending of a movie Mm -hmm. is intentionally the opposite of the beginning. So I I think create contrast that might actually work pretty well with many. In fact, I, I invite you somebody to try this with like some mediocre Hollywood film, the Marmaduke movie. Yeah. R.I.P.D. Yeah, just some, something that was not not at all remarkable, and try doing that as well, and you might find similar parallels, just because yeah. that's film language in general. Well, that's what the mind does. It mm. creates connections, even if yeah. there aren't any there. But one of the but, one thing... Uh, yeah. But in, in Room 237, yeah. uh, they found evidence that Kubrick was trying to confess that he had faked the moon landing. Mm-hmm. And that famous uh, Overlook Hotel rug pattern, that like mm-hmm. really ugly 70s thing with the, the honeycomb pattern. Yeah. Evidently, that really strongly resembles, like, an Air Force shuttle hangar, oh, <laughs> where, like, he would have gone to shoot no, all this footage. No, yeah. no. Room 237's a really interesting documentary about the way that a lot of people, like, read mm. so much into art that it becomes, like, it's has, ends up having nothing to do with the art itself after a while. And it's just full of people's theories about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, some of which are perfectly legitimate reads. Like, the read that... Uh, Kubrick made Jack Torrance kind of the Minotaur in the mm. in the maze. That kind of bears out. Like that's not an unreasonable thing. Kubrick might have thought of that. Mm. But there's also a lot in there where you're just like, no, fun to think about, but no. Uh, the one last thing uh, before we read one more letter is uh, there's a fun movie that slipped under a lot of radars that is about faking the moon landings. It's called Operation Avalanche. I didn't see Operation Avalanche. It's a, it's a mockumentary. And it is about two guys at like I think I think they're at NASA, and it's just before the moon landing, or they're just before the the, the moon mission, and they find out what they're doing is they're trying to see if the Russians are trying to spy on America and mm-hmm. their various moon whatever, and while they're trying to see if Russia is tapping the line, they accidentally hear a classified communique that says going to the moon is technically impossible, like mm-hmm. we cannot do it, and so what they do is they engineer a way to fake it. Mm-hmm. And it's all about how, if they did fake the moon landing, this is probably what they would have done. And there is a really fun bit 
where, in order to learn more about filmmaking and visual effects, they sneak onto the set of 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> and they actually, I think they do have some archive footage of Stanley Kubrick in it. And he oh, didn't do so it. Funny. He didn't say he did it. Mm. But his filmmaking style influenced it and how he was using visual effects influenced it. Um, it's a fun film. Operation Avalanche, absolutely worth seeing if you like film history, sci-fi, mockumentary, political thriller. It really underrated flick, I think. Mm. Let's read one more letter. One more letter. Uh, here's a letter from uh, Name Redacted. Um, Hello, Whitney and Bibbs. Hope you're all staying safe. Uh, before anything, say hi to the kid from the biggest Shazam <laughs> fan in Turkey. Wow, nice. Oh, I, a, I will be sure to do a, that. A Turkish fan. Um, I, I'm actually, I'm actually, we're, we're having a meeting tomorrow about future game stuff. I'll be sure let, to bring it up. Let, let him know. Um, yeah. I wanted to write you guys to hear your thoughts on how Hollywood is so global nowadays mm-hmm. that if it is hurting local or niche films. I've been trying to force myself to watch non-Hollywood, non-English language films. I've been loving some of them. For example, Raw, The Platform, mm-hmm. and uh, this here's one I don't know. Scusate e se esisto? I don't know that That movie. one I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I started thinking about how Hollywood exports so many movies and if that hurts the chance of other films from other countries making an international impact. Mm. No movie theater here in Turkey would rather play Raw when they could play Avengers Endgame because money. I consider myself a huge movie fan, but I find myself rarely watching or enjoying even Turkish movies. Are there? Do you have thoughts on this? I also realize this is partially due to movies being products nowadays. Endgame sells well. So, of course, theater owners would want that over any other movie. Do you think the fact that art is now something that is sold hurts the art form itself? Oh, that's an old question you're asking. That Uh, that predates film. Uh, I find myself struggling to justify art as a product, but cannot deny this has led to some great movies as well. I'm looking, uh, looking at Sorry to Bother You. But then again, that kind of movie never becomes a Hollywood export like summer blockbusters. Can't wait to hear your opinions on this. Take care, stay safe, Bibbs, and uh, become the team champs, please, kind sir. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try. I'm yeah. going to try. I think we got a good chance. We're studying real, real hard. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, we have an upcoming match. Uh, me and Brendan Meyer, a.k.a. The Kid. Uh, we have a match against Corruption, Mike Kalinowski and Chance Ellison, the current team champions mm-hmm. of the Movie Tribute Schmodown. Uh, that is in mid-October. Uh, you can uh, buy tickets to watch that live. Uh, over the internet, or you can like I think mm. wait like one week, maybe two, and you can watch it uh, for free. But it'll, there's a decent chance it'll get spoiled for you. So fair warning. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm very excited about that. On to your letter. The first thing I want to address because it's kind of short. Um, Whitney and I grew up in California, mm-hmm. and as a result, you know th- we know about film distribution in other markets around the world, other other countries. Uh, but we don't know what it's like to grow up there. So the idea of um, Hollywood movies getting, you know, shoving out locally produced works of cinematic art is something we've definitely heard of, but we're not coming at this from experience of we know exactly what that's like. Yeah. It's, um, we, we do know how hard it is sometimes to see international films yeah, we, in America. Yeah, we, we know the the counter of this. Yeah. I mean, all, all, all of Hollywood films are made here. The, uh, America is, I think, the second biggest film market in the world after Bollywood. Mm-hmm. And, and for a long time, it was number one. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think India makes far more movies than America does. Especially, especially it has now, for a while, but, yeah. I think, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, because everything's so flooded with all these new studio products, it creates a really competitive marketplace for international cinema and indie cinema. Now, we live in Los Angeles. It's easy for us to find those things if we look for them. Yeah. Uh, right. But not everybody lives in Los Angeles. You yeah. might live, you know, in, in 
you know, a very small town in Kansas that only has one movie theater. Exactly. So you're not going to have a chance to see smaller indie films. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pandemic has changed every home into that small town in Kansas. Uh, in that now we have to rely on what's available on streaming mm-hmm. uh, to find these films. And we are actually uh, all in here in Los Angeles opening up to this idea that there's this huge variety of things that are available to us if we're willing to dig a little bit. And also change our expectations. Like if you mm-hmm. only see movies because they're big, giant blockbusters and you find that entertaining, that's perfectly fine. It's Everyone has their sense of taste, but... There aren't a lot of those right now, and the ones that we're getting aren't necessarily the same thing. Like, The Old Guard was a fun action movie about immortals kicking ass. Mm. It's also not quite at the scale of the $250 million blockbusters that we would normally get, and it probably got way more attention, it probably got way more views Mm. this summer because it wasn't competing against Wonder Woman and James Bond and Tenet and... Top Gun and all these other movies that were supposed to come out. Um, so it's it's always uh, always yeah. uh, always an odd marketplace. But yeah. as for your second question, well, have have you traveled internationally and gone to movies internationally? Ever? Um, only at film festivals. Oh, okay. I've never actually like mm. traveled anywhere. I've traveled to other states, but I've never and like gone to movies locally there. But I've never like just like gone to I don't know France and just seen a movie. Mm. Like I've only ever gone to other countries, and even then, it's mostly just Canada. Uh, nothing against Canada at all. It's just like it's not that it's, far. Yeah, <laughs> it's, we, we share a border with that. Yeah, it's, country, it's, yeah. it's not. It's not the most dramatic difference you could possibly Ge- have geographically. Yeah. yeah, like you know, you go to Canada. It's like oh, everything is so so different here. I don't know what. Like no, it's, like, I can figure it out. Both, it's Canada, but both, like both, they both speak English and the donuts are better. <laughs> Arguably. We have good donuts here in Los Angeles. We're kind of spoiled I, on good donuts. Although stands closed. <gasps> yeah. Completely, like somebody saved the space. Okay, and they're turning and they're turning into their own donut shop. But okay. Stan Stan's oh, Donuts that's... in Westwood, California, has closed down. That's a shame. That they, that was they, one of the best they, donut they places in the world. In the on the yeah. globe, not even yeah. in in L A. Like and that's, the whole world. And that's not us saying that. They're like there's articles on it, like, like it's, actual it was, food oh, critics who agree with us. That sucks. Stan's was amazing. Um. Well, in any case, um. That is. That well, I, I got distracted. I have, what happened? We were talking about Canada. I, uh, <laughs> I, just, I, I, just, I haven't, have, I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen a lot of movies in international markets. Yeah. Incidentally, and if I have, I've seen them yeah. at film festivals. So it's different. Um, I remember seeing some movies when I was traveling internationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in 1994, I spent uh, most of that year out of the country, just because I was on the road. I was traveling. I was staying in hostels, yeah. just having an, an adventure with my family and. Uh, American movies kind of drifted through and they always got the biggest uh, marquee, mm-hmm. like the biggest letters on the marquee. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, let, let's go see, see this movie. What's playing down here? Well, there's there's an Israeli film, like, because we're in Jerusalem. There's this, like, Israeli film down here at the bottom. We can see this one. Or really, really big Mrs. Doubtfire starring Robin Williams. Yeah. It's like, well, so yeah, the American product does tend to get the attention. At yeah. least it did when, in my experience, anecdotally, from my experience traveling through Europe in 1994. And, and this is uh, – a lot of this is intentional. Like Hollywood has mm. played itself up like the purveyor of the quote-unquote good stuff. Like they'll throw more money at it. Yeah. They'll have better production values. They'll have big stars that you're hearing about in all of the tabloids regardless of what country you're in. Um, they're They're trying to, to, to dominate the global marketplace mm. and to an extent – 
they yeah, succeeded. Yeah. And one of the interesting things I, I I remember when I learned this, it kind of blew my mind when they first started making synchronized because when they were making silent movies, sending them in other countries easy. You just change out the title card. Yeah, nothing. You know, it's it's easy. You don't have to do a damn thing. But with sound, all of a sudden, people are actually speaking a language, and they weren't sure like the best way to release films in international markets. So there are actually a lot of early, early Hollywood movies have two versions. Case in point, uh, the Bela Lugosi version of Dracula. Oh yeah. There's a, they would, what they would do is during the day, they would film the English language version of Dracula. And at night on the exact same sets, they would film the Spanish language version of Dracula with completely different actors with a different director. And a lot of people prefer that version. I would say this, that version is better directed than Todd mm. Browning's Dracula, which is a classic for a reason. Their Dracula doesn't quite have the same magnetism as Bela Lugosi. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's still a really cool version. And on most DVDs and Blu-rays of the movie now, you have both versions. And it's absolutely worth seeing the the Spanish language Dracula. It is mm. really, really good. And uh, I don't know if this still happens. But, but anyway, know, anyway uh, they figured out you could just overdub it. And yeah. they, that was way easier. And They, they figured yeah. you could dub it. And in fact, uh, if you go to a lot of Italian films, yeah. uh, films made in Italy uh, throughout like the 60s and 70s, uh, usually hired some like pretty well-known international actors. They'd cast mm. like one big American, but also uh, like a big French actor and a, and a yeah. lot of local Italian talent. Yeah, a lot of Italian. And they ones. would have everybody speak their native language. Mm. They would read all their lines in whatever language they spoke. So here's Burt Lancaster, and he's talking to Alan Delon, and they're speaking English and French to each other, and then you watch the movie, and it's all dubbed in Italian. Yeah, or English. Uh, or, or English, depending yeah. on where the, the film is opening. And uh, Sometimes they didn't even record the sound. No, and indeed, when yeah, yeah, when they were shooting a lot of these things, they weren't recording at all. Uh, yeah. A lot of Fellini's movies were that. In fact, Fellini liked shooting his films without sound because he liked that weird dreamy quality of having the actors dub over their own voices or have somebody else dub them over. And again, in a, in a lot of countries all around mm-hmm. the world, because so many of the films that were released were Hollywood films and those would all be dubbed, mm-hmm. it wasn't weird mm-hmm. to see like people having dialogue and it not matching their mouth movements. Like it's, I know a lot of Americans who get weirded out by that, and I get that, it. It was way it, common yeah. in in Europe, yeah. decades and, ago, and and and, 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 and all, all over the world, world all yeah. over the world. So again, it's the it's Hollywood's like the way Hollywood handles their international releases completely mm. changes the entire now, paradigm, artistic and financial. Um, and. and I don't have a, a deep experience with Turkish film in particular, no. uh, so I can't sort of recommend uh, or give you a, a general idea as to the fabric of all Turkish cinema. Hmm. I've seen some Turkish movies. Uh, but I would encourage everybody mm. to watch movies from their home country, no matter where you are, mm. as well as movies from countries all over the world. Of course. Uh, just because America is insisting that Avengers Endgame is the big one to see this weekend, or is, this year, or this year, case, or yeah. whatever it is, or, you know, uh, there you have, you should not ever feel obligated. Yeah. You should see the movies you want to see, but I also encourage you to see movies uh, from every as many countries as you can. Well, I just say support your local artists of all kinds. Yeah, support yeah. your local musicians, support mm. your local painters, support, support every kind of person because yeah, yeah. it's so easy for artists to get overshadowed by the big. Corporations, which brings us to your second part, which is sort of the monetization of art and whether that gets in the way of everything. Mm, that that's it does. 
That's a subject for a whole podcast series. It's a whole uh, yeah, thing. There's this, this notion of commercial art and how much... Uh, how much the commercialism of art kind of degrades the form, if it degrades the form at all. Uh, is art worthwhile uh, if it's not a commercial product? Can we only see art if it is a commercial product? Uh, read the history of Andy Warhol. That's ex- all what he was about. Watch Tim Burton's film Big Eyes. That's a good one. Uh, which is about that phenomenon, yeah. about uh, taking art, and in that case, like kind of kitschy art, not, not mm-hmm. even uh, arguably good art, mm-hmm. uh, and... How printing it on posters and reproducing it on mass and starting this whole movement uh, is is that a positive thing for art or is that a negative thing for art? On one hand, more people have the art. Yeah. On the other hand, it starts beca- it starts losing its sort of it's rareness, its uniqueness. It's, yeah. yeah. Uh, and when it comes to film, you know, we live in America. Here, you and I, William, and we. Uh, we're constantly butting up against the films that the studios and the marketers all want us to talk about. Yeah. And that's all we have written about for a lot of the outlets we've written for, because those are the things that are being advertised. And those are the things people are going to be interested in going in. There's the, uh, anticipation industrial complex again. And, uh, but like, but it, and and on the other hand, looking at it from the perspective of the people who make these movies, Mm -hmm. because there are some places where, you know, movies are funded, through nonprofits or even through the government, but you know, here in Hollywood, it's pretty much all to make money. It is a business. It is capitalism. And the thing with film is, even the cheapest film is very expensive compared to most other works of art. Mm. You can get a pad of paper and a pencil, and you can write the greatest book ever written. You want to make a movie? You got to get cameras. You got to get editing equipment. You got to get you know actors and get them scheduled and get everyone paid and. A cheap movie is expensive, and an expensive movie is ridiculously expensive. So in order to get that money, if you're not independently wealthy, you need to get investors, and investors don't want to throw their money down a well. Mm. They want to know that they'll get that money back, and that's where the danger happens because now all of a sudden you're not responsible for just making telling the story you wanted to tell. Yeah, You're also responsible for telling a story that will make money. Right. How do we know what makes money? Well, you look at other things that have made money. And now we're trapped in a cycle from which we will never return. (laughs) Because everything starts feeling like other things. And movies start getting greenlit specifically because they're like other things. And there's plenty of good movies that get made in that system. But it's a system that does not reward uh, risk-taking, sort of... um, Artistic daring, yeah. you know, and, and sometimes it happens, but the majority of the time, it is not. Is that the worst thing in the world? Eh, it's the world in which we live. Mm. Again, there's a lot of good movies that come out of it, but it would be interesting to see a world in which that was not necessary. Well, uh, we see this in other countries, though. Other countries, yeah. uh, some films are financed by the government. Exactly what I just said. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, uh, and like yeah. Uh, Canada, England. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if we did that? If we had an, yeah. an arts council that was really interested in putting a lot of money into feature films because mm-hmm. it's an important art form. And getting them a proper mm-hmm. release for it as mm-hmm. well, not just like we made an art film. This is, this, Throw it onto this, VOD. This is, yeah, this is a public film, and like, this nothing. is for the edification of the citizens. A lot, a lot of the amazing like British films that mm. we see are funded by like the National Lottery over there, mm. and that's 
not a slight. These movies are huge and they get big releases and win awards and they're well respected. So there's it there's many other ways to do it, but we're in America, it's a capitalist system. They want to make money, and if they want to make money, they want to make all the money, which leads to a lot of decisions that only support that, mm. which does stink. Mm. Um anyway, that is you've not you've we've got mail. <laughs> we've got mail. Yeah, we're not emailing you. Uh-huh. Although that would be a totally different podcast and kind of interesting. Uh, no, this is We've Got Mail. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. If you want to write in for a future episode of We've Got Mail, it's a it's a pretty simple process. Go to your email. Go to the uh, to section. <laughs> and you're going to type <laughs> letters. Explaining what email means. Letters uh, at, which is not the word at, but that A with the circle around it. Uh, critically acclaimed dot Net and then yeah. there's a button at the bottom that says SND. That means send. But don't hit that yet. You actually. So, yeah, to, oh yeah, yeah. For, you, first, write the body of your email. Yeah, and and maybe a subject line as well. You know, we're not going to tell you how to live your life, but like write the write the body of the email. <laughs> really type it all out. You know, or or like use like voice commands or whatever if that's how you prefer to do it. That's how everyone does it in sci-fi movies. I don't know. I like, I, I like typing. But anyway, you can do whatever you like. It's your <laughs> life. So you're going to write that. And you're going to write what you want to write, and uh, you and when you hit when you're done when you feel like. This is the email I want to send. You want to sit on it for a minute? I totally get that. But in any case, once you're ready, once you feel the, the strength mm-hmm. building within you, uh, you hit send, and then we get that email, and we might read it on a future episode mm. of We've Got Mail. Uh, if you want to uh, direct with us, uh, direct with us. If you want to connect with us more directly, we're also on Twitter. Uh, Twitter. Uh, the show is at Critic Acclaim. Critically acclaimed was too long. We are at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have a ton of exclusive content, including a podcast dedicated to every single episode of Star Trek ever produced. One podcast per episode. Uh, we have a new podcast called Holy Batman, in which we're doing every single episode of the 1960s live action Batman series. Uh, we have not on Disney Plus, where we talk about movies and TV that should be on Disney Plus, but is not for some reason. Uh, we have only the best. We're reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We have commentary tracks. We just put out one for Star Wars: The Last Jedi, um, and other stuff as well. So, and a lot of it's available. As soon as you sign up, you can just go through our back catalog, and there are dozens, if not hundreds, of hours. Uh, probably at least a hundred hours, mm-hmm. I imagine, just between Star Trek and a few others um, that are currently available. So, um, in any case, thank you everybody for listening. We hope you stay safe and sane and, uh, very, very safe right now. It's a, it's a hard time and, uh, sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. You see, not everyone knows how to send an email. <laughs> thank you for explaining the concept of email to us. <laughs>